Good morning. If uh, you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Meet me in uh, Matthew chapter 2. That's where we'll be uh, spending our time. Uh, We'll be just looking at verses 1 through 12. Uh, That's Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. If you don't know me, my name is uh, Mike Kazarowski. I'm one of the pastors uh, on staff. I'm on the team here. Um, In light of Pastor Mark's announcement last Sunday, uh, let me just help you put a face with the name. Um, I'll be the one filling the gap, uh, filling the gap uh, until we find a more permanent solution here on Sunday mornings. So we are going to get a little bit more um, time with each other. Um, Just so you understand my heart in the matter, I haven't had the opportunity yet to address you as a whole. Um, I want you to know that personally, um, my, my wife and I, my family, we are very, very sad to see uh, Pastor Mark go. Um, he has been a prominent mentor in my own life in the past five years that we've worked together, and so it is sad. And our church is going to experience um, a period of grief, and we recognize that there's going to be a period of grief. But you also have to know that I'm very excited and privileged to fill this need for such a time as this. Um, I'm excited. I really am. And I want you guys to know how excited I am. And I I appreciate the concern that several of you have already showed for me and my workload. Um, But I I do want you to know this is an exciting time for us as a family uh, and for FAC as a family. Um, We may not fully understand what's going on uh, in the life of our church right now, but it is in moments like these that we connect what we don't know with what we do know. And what do we know? We know that whoever stands in this pulpit, Jesus Christ still sits on the throne. And we hold on to that truth. And I want you to know that everything's going to be okay. We will get through this. And so we move onward together as an FAC family. Um, God has wonderful plans in store for this church, and we need to rally together to ensure that we remain proactive. Uh, You need to know that during this time uh, of transition, um, this will not be a holding pattern for us. Uh, The staff has every intention to continue to fulfill our mission to transform Erie by introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ. That will not stop. And so let me encourage you all as you sit here to uh, continue to support FAC even more so now than ever. Be here, be present, be active, be serving, be around. And as we slide into this transition, let me please encourage you to give grace to the Harris family as they transition. Uh, We love them dearly. Give grace to the staff of FAC and give grace to the board of elders as they pray and guide us through uh, this transition. So with that being said, let's take a look at what God has in store for us today in Scripture. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. I'll read it and I'll pray and we'll begin. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And Lord, as we look to your word, I pray that we would hear your voice. Wherever we're coming from, wherever life has us right now, let us hear your voice and respond. Amen. I remember as a child, uh, every year at Christmas time, my mother used to set out in our living room um, a nativity set that was carved from clay. One of her friends had made it for her, and this was one of her most prized Christmas decorations that she would set up every year. Um, it was fascinating to me and I was drawn to it, but I wasn't allowed to play with it at all. I wasn't even allowed to touch it. So I would just sit there and gaze. But every once in a while, being the rebellious child that I was, I would sneak into the living room and kind of look to my left and look to my right to make sure nobody was watching. And I would pick up these little figures and I would just rub my fingers through the etchings in the engravings of each of the characters. Um, And I was just fascinated by them. And out of all of the figures, the ones that I was drawn to the most, the ones that had my attention the most were these three wise men because it didn't look like they belonged there. You know, you had Mary and Joseph in their plain little clay outfits um, and you had baby Jesus in his plain little swaddling clothes in, in, in a wooden manger. And even the donkeys and the sheep seemed to fit this picture of a stable or a manger. And then you had these three wise men who wore extravagant clothes, uh, colorful clothes with, with gold trim. And they wore these really cool crowns on the top of their head, and they they were holding these intricate, beautiful gift boxes in their hands. And I just always thought that they didn't belong there. Well, as I grew older and gained a better understanding of Scripture and Jesus' birth narrative, I realized that I was actually right. They didn't belong there. As you read the story here in Matthew 2, we're introduced to these wise men or magi, and they're kind of shrouded in mystery. 
And Matthew's the only gospel account to include their story. And while we don't know much about them, we can recognize that there are several misconceptions that we have about these wise men. Uh, and we don't need to spend much time on these, but there's really two main misconceptions that, that bear mentioning because it's going to help us understand the proper t- context of this story. The first is that, once again, th- we know that they weren't there the night that Jesus was born. They, they don't belong in the beautiful nativity set, the nativity scene that we've all come to grow and love. Um, in verse 2, we actually see that they claim that they saw this star, his star, Jesus' star, rise. It rose from the west. And we get the implication here. We might be reading this a little bit, but the implication is that the star rose when Jesus was born. Um, and so they packed up. These men were traveling from the east most likely the Persian region, uh, which would have put them about 900 miles away. And so if they started traveling 900 miles, which to put that into perspective is about here to Jacksonville, Florida, this would have been a several months journey on Camelback. I can't drive 90 miles in a car without growing impatient. (laughs) Yet here are these wise men traveling 900 miles, practically walking, going at a camel's pace to make this journey. And so you could imagine that after they make their several month journey, Jesus is a little bit older than, than an infant. He's probably closer to a child or a toddler. Um, this is further confirmed later on in chapter two. We didn't read this, but in verse 16, Herod, when he realizes that he's been outwitted by the wise men, uh, issues an, an order that all the baby boys under the age of two be murdered in Bethlehem. And so we get this picture that Jesus is somewhere in that six month at the very early earliest to two year to two year period. Um, They weren't there the night that Jesus was born. Uh, Second, we don't know how many there were. We know there were multiple, but we seem to associate the number three with the wise men. And the reason being is because they gave three gifts. So if each of them had a gift, there must have been three wise men. But the matter of the fact is we we don't know. Um, And with them coming so far away, there's a very good chance that they were traveling with some sort of an entourage. They, they, um, it was not safe to travel alone or in low numbers back then in ancient times. And so there's a very high probability that while there may only have been two or three or four wise men, uh, they had others accompanying them as well. They were important guys back in Persia. So they probably took precautions to ensure their safety. And so think of this as a, as a larger group. I don't even want to put a number on it because I don't seek to deceive or read too much into the text, but there, there was a, a, a group of people traveling. And uh, while those are two major misunderstandings, we still can look at the historical context and unpack what we do know about these wise men, these magi. Um, We do know that these men were leading figures in the king of Persia's royal court. They would have probably served as religious advisors to the king. You know, unlike the shepherds that we, Pastor Mark preached about last week that are kind of bottom of the totem pole, uh, the wise men here, these are important people. These are, these are bigwigs, right? They are prominent figures in their country and they're brushing shoulders with some of the highest and most influential and most important figures and authorities in Persia. 
You know, in our culture, we have in America, the president and the president has advisors and cabinet members. That's where these wise men would be sitting in their context. They probably specialized in astrology and astronomy, which were closely linked in those times. Uh, They were considered professionals in their field. And so while they're not only important and not only influential, but these guys are smart. These are, these are some of the most highly educated men in their context of the day. They, they are highly educated. Um, but while they're important and while they're influential and while they're educated to the Jewish person who lives in Jerusalem, these men were about as pagan as they came. They were like the pagan of pagans. Uh, their practices typically involved various uh, occult practices uh, that included sorcery. They kind of had their own uh, sacrificial system going on, and they were especially renowned for being able to uh, interpret dreams. Our word for magic or magical is actually derived by the title magi. And so Matthew's original readers would have a very sour taste in their mouth as they read that magi came from the east. And to the Jews, these were not good guys. If these guys strolled in the neighborhood, they would have kept their distance. If there's rumors going around that there's magi in vicinity, it's, it's time to call the kids inside. We don't want our kids kind of hanging out with those type of people, right? They would just keep their distance. One Jewish philosopher referred to the magi as vipers and scorpions, you get the feeling for how they, they feel about these, these wise men. And so it's remarkable that Matthew, who writes this gospel account, who is a Jewish man, wrote his gospel from a Jewish perspective for a Jewish audience, would use this story and not paint them in a negative light. Why on earth would he begin his story of Jesus of his gospel account by telling the story about these, these wise men. To the Jewish reader, these wise men did not belong there. So what is Matthew doing? What he's doing is very purposeful. He's purposeful in his writing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's challenging the prejudice that we often have in religious circles against pagans. As we'll see, um, he's showing us that the gospel message is not confined to a religious institution. It goes beyond a particular place or location. And this is a foreign concept to Matthew's original readers because for them, the, the appropriate place for worship was the temple. And that was it. If you wanted to worship God, if you really, truly wanted to worship God and experience God, you had to go to the temple. But Matthew teaches that the power of the gospel is not limited to four walls. There is no barriers for the message of Jesus Christ. One commentator says that for one special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself where the pagans were looking. We're reminded of the necessity to preach the gospel to all people because you never know who will respond. Those that we least expect to hear God's voice 
will hear God's voice and seek him. Even the most pagan of pagans may respond to Jesus given the opportunity, given the opportunity, which is what the Magi did through some sort of cosmic event, this star that appears in the sky. Nobody's, nobody can seem to agree what this was, right? Was it a meteor, a comet? Was it something supernatural? Or was it God using something natural? Nobody can really agree uh, on what this is, but we do know that God orchestrated it. He orchestrated this, this cosmic event, and through this cosmic event of the star appearing in the sky, um, the, the Magi, he's calling out to them, and, and they, they seek him out. They respond, and they have one goal in mind in seeking out this king of the Jews. It's to find the king of the Jews and to worship him. It's their one mission, to find the king of the Jews and worship him. They set out on their 900-mile journey to find the one who was born the king of the Jews and worship him. This title, king of the Jews, would have had messianic undertones to it. What I mean by that is that when you hear the title King of the Jews, you would correlate that with Savior, Messiah, the coming one, Son of David, Son of, son of Man. The King of the Jews was kind of in there. And the Magi would know this and recognize that King of the Jews means this or is kind of alluding to this because um, in their time period, there was centuries before where Jewish people were exiled to the east, Right? And when the Jews could return to Judah, several Jewish families did, but several stayed behind. And they would have had influence on um, just religion in that region. And so the Magi, the wise men, were somewhat familiar with Old Testament prophecy. And they may have kind of taken it and um, morphed it into what they believed and into their own religions. But there was influence in the religious field. And so these men probably assumed that if there has been a baby born king of the Jews, he will most likely be in Jerusalem, which is the royal city. It's David's royal city. And so we're going we're gonna to start there. In order to find him, that's a very good place to start. And so imagine this larger group of unwanted people from the east coming into town and start asking about this new king. They probably didn't go to Herod first. They probably just kind of went around in the city and just asked bystanders, citizens, if they had known about this king born to the Jews. And uh, it would have been a um, surprise to them that nobody knew what they were talking about. Right? It would have been it would have been rather discouraging, or they'd be a little shocked or disgruntled that they just journeyed nine hundred miles, and, and nobody has a clue. Nobody knows this monumental birth that occurred. This wasn't as major news as they thought that it was going to be. And so from Jerusalem's perspective, you have this undesirable group of people from the east, which was always a present threat to them, looking for a new king that they have no knowledge about. And of course, that's going to get people talking, right? The rumor mill is going to fire up. Everybody's going to be a little bit on edge, maybe a little uneasy. People are going to start talking, and eventually word gets to King Herod. He hears the news, and our focus is shifted to him. See, although Herod was not Jewish, he ruled this region, this area of land 
uh, in, uh, where Judah was located was one of the many regions that fell to the colossal and ever-expanding Roman Empire. And so what the Romans would do is as they would conquer different territories and different regions, they would instill uh, other figures into, uh, into their roles of leadership. Right, and so Herod um, is ruling over Judah, but under Roman law. Having gained prominence, he ruled this Jewish region under Rome's control in the late first century BC. And Herod, because he ruled over the Jewish people, would actually call himself the king of the Jews. He would refer to himself as the king of the Jews, but he had no valid claim to this throne. This was, this was handed to him. He, he claimed this throne by military force. And so there is a stark contrast between Herod, who makes the empty declaration that he is the king of the Jews, and Jesus, who the Magi say is born the king of the Jews. One has a legitimate birthright, a legitimate bloodline claim to the throne, and the other does not. And so Herod perceives this as a threat, as he should, because it is. And Herod doesn't react well to these type of circumstances. He was an absolutely wicked and cruel man and a slimy politician. Not only that, he was known to be paranoid and these things do not mix very well. He was constantly trying to protect at any cost his position of power and authority, but doing it in such a way to save face. On one account, we know that Herod had his uh, fearing a potential threat, had the high priest who was his own brother-in-law drowned. And then he went on to provide this elaborate funeral for the guy where he pretended to weep in order to show the people of how sad he was. And that wasn't the only family member that traveled through Herod's line of fire. He had his wife murdered. He had his mother-in-law murdered. He had his three sons murdered. Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman Empire, once said that he'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. So it's not a surprise that upon hearing the news that a new king has been born, that he was greatly troubled. And so he's got to find out more information about the whereabouts of this newborn king of the Jews. And so in verse 4, we see that he consults with the Jewish, Jewish chief priests and scribes. He goes after them saying, who is this guy? Where is he going to be born? Where is he supposed to be? These chief priests and scribes, these guys were um, the main Jewish authority in this region. They were the experts at interpreting the law of Moses. And so in our context, they are still under Roman law. They're still under Herod's rule, but they did have political influence. You know, back then, there was no separation of church and state in, in their, their context. And so your uh, religious leaders and your political leaders were often the same people. The lines were blurred between religion and, and politics. You know, in the Old Testament, this office of chief priest was a high, important position among the Israelites that came out of the tribe of Levi. It was a very important role that God himself ordained through Moses. 
unfortunately, by the time we get to the New Testament, they had become nothing more than a corrupt group of religiously oriented politicians. Right? They, they, these guys in the New Testament context would very much compromise some of their own convictions to fit a political agenda. They may look a certain way, but on the inside of their hearts, they're just, they're just pulling strings, making moves, pulling levers to get a political agenda advanced. And these guys were very well versed in the Old Testament prophecies, so much so that when Herod inquires to them, this is common knowledge. They probably didn't even need to go look it up. They, they quote Micah 5.2 about the Messiah's birthplace. They know exactly where he's supposed to be born. Oh yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem in, in Judea. This is common knowledge for them. These men would have also been familiar with all of the other prophecies about the, the Messiah as well. You know, there are over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that they would have known, that they would have been familiar with. They should know who the Messiah is and what, exactly what he's going to look at look like. In Matthew, in the first several chapters, we actually see him referencing four of these prophecies right off the gate, how this baby Jesus fulfilled them. And what Matthew is is doing is drawing our attention to the fact that this baby, this baby Jesus born in Bethlehem in the land of, of Judah is no ordinary baby. Now, this is a special kid. This baby is something else. This baby has eternal ramifications. This baby would, would grow up into a man who would do amazing things. And this child would become a man who would claim to be God incarnate. And this, this, this little one would grow up into an adult that would ask you to lay down your life and submit to him. You can't do um, amazing things like that and make those incredible claims and demand those outrageous requests and just leave it there. No, you, you, from what we know about the biblical Jesus and what we know about what he taught, you have to decide what to do with Jesus. He has drawn a line in the sand and has asked us to take sides. His life demands a response from your life. His teaching demands for us, each and every one of us in this very room, to decide, how will I respond to Jesus? How will I respond to Jesus? And when we look at our text, we see three basic responses that our main characters make. And they happen to be three responses that we still make today. The first one is Herod responds in hostility. Herod is hostile. He, he is disturbed and in trouble. He, he is shaking with anger. And he tries to use the wise men as pawns in his cunning scheme to, to kill Jesus. And when they don't return, he issues that all the boys under two years old in Bethlehem be, be murdered. You see, in Herod's mind, nobody was going to make a claim to his throne especially a vulnerable child lying helplessly in the arms of a young peasant girl. What pride and insecurity will drive you to is maddening. The pit 
that we will travel to in order to retain power is deep. I'm reminded of this uh, from history. Uh, you're, you're probably familiar with uh, Chuck Colson, who served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon. Uh, and as re-election was coming up uh, in President Nixon's first term, Chuck Colson is famous for saying that he'd walk over his own grandma to re-elect Nixon. I'd run over my own grandma to get that man reelected because in his mind, it was a power trip as I will, I will go to great depths to retain power. Some of us are like Herod. We, we love the power. We love the authority and we will not let go of it. They're going to have to, they're going to have to pry it off my dead fingers before I let go. And they're immediately hateful, wanting nothing to do with God's way. We're rebellious towards it. It's offensive to us. And we turn to God and we say, how dare you? How dare you try and run my life? Who do you think you are, God, to tell me what to do, to barge into my life and to sit on my throne? So not only are we offended by Jesus in his way, we attempt to attack it. We attempt to destroy it. We take every and any measure necessary to ensure that no one else calls the shots in our life. We do whatever it takes to retain a position of power. Hostility. The second response that we see in our text is a little bit more hidden because it's not as much a response, but a lack of response. The chief priests and the scribes, they show indifference. They show indifference. I fear that this one's a little bit more prominent in the American church than the first. The chief priests and the scribes receive word that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the, the long-awaited savior has been born. And they know that if this is true, that he would be in Bethlehem and they don't do anything. From their perspective, even if it was alleged, you would think that they would be all over that. These guys had more than enough knowledge to recognize Jesus when he came and had more than enough knowledge uh, to, to know how they should properly respond to him, and they don't. They say he was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was six miles south of Jerusalem. Six miles. That's like from here to Presque Isle. That's a couple hours walk for them. That's a day's journey. These pagan magi just spent the last several months journeying 900 miles and these religious leaders won't travel six miles for a day to check out their awaited Messiah, their savior. He is practically on their doorstep and they miss him. They don't recognize him. They don't know him. And as we sit here today, we are even closer. The treasures of knowing Jesus Christ and as Savior sit a mere foot away from us in this, in this book. You have so many questions in life. And you have so many issues and your heart groans and you're so desperately looking for comfort in trying times. You feel like you're at the end of the rope and the answer is literally sitting a mere feet 
away from you and you're indifferent. You're indifferent. Because you say, well, it's, it's, it's the holidays. Work is really busy right now. You don't understand. I don't, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy with my kids' activity. You know, they're in three sports and, and they've got to achieve at them at a high level. So I've got to be there. And, and so I don't, I, don't have, I don't have time for that. Or, you know, the, you, you just say, I've got so much going on. I've got like this friend drama that, that's happening. I don't, I, don't, I don't have time for that. Or, you know, I've got to catch up on my shows. You know, Netflix, right? <laughs> I've got I to binge watch. Several weeks ago, my son, I don't even think he was four at this time, <laughs> went to Sarah, my wife, and said, why are adults always looking at their phones? <laughs> They're like glued to the screen from the mouths of babes. <laughs> why are adults always looking at their phones? Because we're distracted. We're so distracted that we are indifferent. And we're so indifferent that we're missing Jesus. We're not recognizing him. To say that I don't have time to seek out Jesus like a treasure is apathy to the highest degree. The fact that these religious leaders, these men who studied scripture for a living, didn't recognize Jesus should be an eye-opener for us. You know, later in Jesus' ministry, he addresses this. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage terrifies me. This is scary stuff. There are people out there who think that they know Jesus, but don't. And they spend their entire lives pursuing nice Christian things, but miss submission to the Savior altogether. And I think it's because in America, in our Western culture, we do a very good job compartmentalizing our life. You know, imagine a bookshelf. And this bookshelf has several different boxes on it. And these boxes are neat and orderly and they, and they don't cross over and everyone has a place and they don't really touch each other. And so like, this is my work box and all, everything in my life ha- go, that deals with work goes in that box. And this is my friend's box. And uh, my friend's box can't mix with my work box because I see enough of those people anyway. And so like, they've got to be separate. And then this is my home box. And then this is my, this is my hobbies box. And then this is my secret box. You're not allowed to know what's in that box because only I know that's a secret and I don't want you to know. And then, and then I have my, my Jesus box, right? And every box has its, its place. And um, in this box, this, this Jesus box, I have nice church things and I have nice Jesus things. And I like this box. I'm glad that I, that I have this box. This is a good box as long as it stays in its place. You know, the second that this box starts affecting all of my other boxes, then I have a problem. You know, by it, you know, I want it there by itself where it won't touch or affect anything else. And so as long as Jesus doesn't try to mess with or get involved with my life, I'll be okay. You know, as long as he doesn't interfere with my life how I want it, uh, it'll be okay. Some of us like Jesus, 
And we like the church things, but the second he tries to interfere, we have a problem. He better get out of my way. We just don't care what Jesus has to say about who we date and how we date. We don't care what Jesus has to say about how we spend our money and how we carry ourselves at work and how we raise our children. But we have to understand that there is a very thin line between indifference and hostility. It's been said that indifference is merely hostility delayed. Because as we'll see later in the Gospels, it was the indifferent chief priests that arrested Jesus and had him hung on a cross. Their indifference quickly turned to hostility. And so we have to do whatever we can. We have to make our best effort now to know and understand and follow the biblical Jesus from God's very own word. Because there are people that stand in pulpits not much different than this one who do not know Jesus. And there are people who sit in chairs and who are a part of churches that look not too much different from FAC that do not know Jesus. They are the blind leading the blind, and we ought not to be like them. Do you recognize Jesus, the biblical Jesus, as God's words describe, and are you following him? Are you worshiping him? This is what the Magi did. Their final response, the proper response. The Magi worshipped him. They probably didn't fully understand the implications of this, but they know there's something different about this baby. You know, you may, uh, you, you see them seek him out and, and you see them rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You see them fall prostrate on the ground. They get on their knees, bowing down, respecting and worshiping Jesus. You see them bear gifts, luxury gifts, fit for a king. And in this moment, their adoration, their submission, the true center of their attention is none but Jesus. One commentator writes that, The truth in itself shows that they were true seekers after God because when he spoke to them in whatever way it was, they heard and they responded. Despite their paganism, quasi-science and superstition, they recognized God's voice when he spoke and they responded. From a religious standpoint, they didn't belong. I was right about the nativity set all along. They didn't belong Yet here they are. Mission accomplished. Worshiping the king of the Jews. A title that 30 years later would hang above him on the cross. In Matthew 27, we're told that as Jesus was placed on the cross over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. The very reason that the wise men sought to find him and worship him was the very reason he died. But he laid down his life willingly so that you could have life. And in his resurrection, he overcame death so that you and I can overcome death. He became a rejected outcast so that you and I could be brought into the fold. So that you and I could be brought not just 
into a, any kind of club or social gathering or a nice place where we gather and talk about life. No, he died and rose from the grave, became a rejected outcast so that you could be brought into the very body of Christ, into the loving arms of our Savior. And so now, all of you have this knowledge of a Savior at hand. You've heard it. God is calling out to you. You've heard his voice. And I'll leave you with the question, what shall I do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus? Let's pray. And Father, we are amazed at your wonder and your glory, Lord. And I pray that when we hear your voice, we would listen. I pray, Lord, for the indifference and the apathy that lies in my own heart. Father, let us be so radically changed uh, by your glory that we can't help but do something about it. That we can't help but worship uh, you, Lord. I pray that when we hear your voice, we would respond, not in hostility, not in indifference, but in worship. Lord, I recognize that one way we respond is in the giving of an offering, Lord. And so I pray as we do collect the offering that um, these monies would be used to make your name known, your great name, the name of Jesus Christ known and so that more people would come to worship him. I pray, Father, that FAC would be good stewards of this offering so that your voice can shout out among the nations the glory of Jesus. In your holy name I pray, amen.